Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. October 5th, 2023, the We Need to Talk About Kevin edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. There's no speaker where I live. We're speakerless here in Washington, D.C., yet I am speaking. Discuss. I am joined by Emily Bazelon, who giggled at my my. I'm going to nominate you for speaker of the house. You can Little riff there, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School, New Haven. Hello, Emily. Thank you. That was gratifying. (laughs) Hey, David. (laughs) And John Dickerson of CBS Prime Time in New York City. Stone-faced and silent. Stone-faced. No, no, not stone-faced. Your computer must have been frozen. I'm one constant blur of activity and animation. This week on the Gabfest, the McCarthy era has ended. We will discuss the bizarre defenestrating, deposing, dethroning of the House Speaker and what happens next. Then the Supreme Court term begins after last year's sweeping rulings on abortion and guns and prayer. What Nation changing things will a conservative majority do this time around. Then, is the urban crime wave real or a conservative fabrication? How should we talk about that issue? Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. And a reminder we have a live show coming up in Madison at the end of this month on October 25th, but we're sold out. So, no more tickets, but can't wait to see those of you who are coming. But we, there are no tickets available as of this moment. Um, but it will be October 25th at 7.30. We hope to see some of you there, many of you there, exactly as many as fit in the venue there. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Shed not one tear for Kevin McCarthy, who I thought would have said or done anything to remain Speaker of the House, yet would not say or do the thing that would save him. McCarthy could have held on to the speakership had he just played a little bit nice with Democrats, perversely chose not to, and ended up being deposed in a rebellion led by Matt Gates, one of the most repellent fellows ever elected to public office. Let's listen to McCarthy talk about the group of eight Republican members of Congress who deposed him. They are not conservatives. They voted against, one, the greatest cut in history that Congress has ever voted for, two trillion. They voted against work requirements. They voted against NEPA reform. They voted against border security. They voted against God. They don't get to say they're conservative because they're angry and they're chaotic. That's not the party I belong to. The party of Reagan was if you believed in your principles that you could govern in a conservative way. They are not conservatives and they do not have the right to have the title. I don't care about Kevin McCarthy, but I do care about the basic functioning of American government. And to me, and we'll get into this, the basic dynamics of Congress appear to be fundamentally incompatible with the survival of American democracy. (laughs) The Republican Party is creeping ever closer and closer to choosing chaos and institutional destruction over the business of politics and the business of, of running the country. And we're in big, big, big trouble. But we'll get to that. We'll start with the more practical matters. Why, briefly, John, was McCarthy deposed? And what, briefly, will happen now? You know the question is coming to me when he inserts briefly. (laughs) 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 Um, So briefly, when you come to power by denigrating the things you have to do once you are in power, it makes it very hard to do those things when you're in power. So when you say, you know, you disrespect institutions, you say compromise is capitulation, and you demonize the other party as the enemy, then as speaker, when you have to do any of those things, um, the people who in your party uh, bought all that stuff you were selling, turn around and look at you and say, you're a sellout. Now, there are some other contributing factors. Kevin McCarthy did the one thing Paul Ryan told him not to do, which is give 
the motion to vacate to a single member of his conference. Um, anybody being able to bounce him from the chair, Ryan said, you cannot allow that rule to exist. McCarthy did that as a as a purchase price for becoming speaker. So when he became speaker, even on election night, it was easy to say this is going to be a very difficult thing to be speaker of this house because so often Kevin McCarthy wasn't just encouraging these kinds of members who are anti-institutionalists. He himself was an anti-institutionalist. He said that the 2020 election was not won by Joe Biden. And he has said that the special counsel investigations are Biden investigations and so forth. So he engages in the rhetoric of politics that that starts at disrespecting institutions. So when some of his members decide to bounce him out and not respect the institution of the House, it's not that surprising. What happens next is there's there's got to be a vote. As I understood it, nothing can happen at all until there's a new speaker. So basically, they just have to keep having votes. But I think it may be possibly true that the interim speaker could try to do some things and basically claim some authority and would only be stopped. I mean, there is a rule that supposedly governs this, but would only be stopped if there was like a vote of the majority saying, don't do what you're just doing. So there may be, if they can't get a new speaker into the seat, there may be some things, I mean, there's a government shutdown we're heading towards in some 40 days. There may be a little period where there's some testing of what can be done by the interim speaker, but mostly nothing can be done until they, they come up with a new speaker. And the two people who are running for that job, at least at the moment, are um, Steve Scalise, the majority leader, and Jim Jordan, the, uh, the uh, chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Emily, McCarthy is somebody who, when he aspired to the job of speaker and sought the job of speaker was truly willing to do anything to ensure his his victory ensure that he got the job here he had a chance to secure his own survival he just needed to throw democrats some tiny little bone just something and they probably would have just taken devil you know and um accepted the sort of giving a, a kiss off to matt gates who they have no you know who's worse than mccarthy for sure um, why didn't McCarthy do even that tiny little step to to save himself? So the political reading, I think, is that anything he did would then damn him with more Republicans in his caucus. The psychological reading is like maybe he'd had enough on some level, like this figure who seemed, yeah, willing to do everything. Maybe he just was like, I've had it. Even if he doesn't frame it that way, you sort of have – there is some – in this farce, there is some sense of tragedy here of someone who, you know, took it and took it and took it and then threw in the towel. I know what you're saying, and I don't mean to undermine that. But I mean, in addition to the other things that he did to undermine institutions, he basically walked back his comments about January 6th. I mean, the leader of his party, who he has moved back towards embracing, or he did when he was speaker, still believes that the election was won by Donald Trump is basically encouraging and applauding the people who attacked the Capitol. The institution that Kevin McCarthy is was, you know, had a stewardship rollover. And yet he was trying to water down what happened on January 6th, kind of rewrite the history. Um, those are choices he made. And when you're the head of an institution like that, you have a stewardship obligation to the institution. You have to make some deposits in caring about the institution. So when something goes down like this and you say, hey, we've got to maintain the the status of the institution, there's something to maintain. But if you run it down, there's nothing to maintain and nobody believes you when you say, you know, don't vacate the speaker's chair because it'll hurt the institution. Well, sure. But those statements he's made about January 6th, all of that is pandering to the right. It's pandering to his own party. What he wasn't willing to do in this moment was give Democrats a bone. And yet at the same time, Matt, right, Matt Gates was saying, you betrayed us on the shutdown, you betrayed us on the debt ceiling raise, like you've been talking out of both sides of your mouth. And I think Matt Gates is correct about that, right? Like McCarthy did do those. It's just very strange. I yeah. It's it's so crazy. He was willing to be a politician in the moments, the the substantive moments that were required it around the debt ceiling and around the shutdown. He was willing to engage in the act of political compromise and negotiation with with a political opponent. And yet he wouldn't do the thing. He wouldn't do that for his own personal political survival. I, I kind of think you're right, Emily, that there is at some level, there's a just screw it. Who I don't need this quality to it. I didn't want to reduce the amount in which 
this was a bed that he made for himself. Yes. Yes. Totally agree. Can I? So in the what happens next speculation. Okay. So Steve Scalise, I mean, seems like a super conservative Republican. Like, sure, whatever. Jim Jordan, like a whole different kettle of worms as far as I can tell. Isn't it possible that the seven people in this deposed Kevin McCarthy faction just like move on to another cause, that this burns itself out, that they just put someone else in the chair. You know, apparently Matt Gates personally had it in for McCarthy um, based on an ethics investigation. And then the party just sort of goes on and like, yes, this was chaotic and disruptive and they look like they don't know how to manage their own ship, but like, so what? And then Matt Gates gets to go on Fox News and on Steve Bannon's podcast even more times. And that's his reason for living. So it's, I don't know, like, it, it seems like that's a possible outcome of this. Within a week. Is that a possible outcome where in which you have a speaker who is, if Steve Scalise is in there, is Steve Scalise willing to make deals and not shut the government down and accept that he's not going to get 100% of what Matt Gates wants on border security and 100% of what Matt Gates wants on defunding the FBI and the Department of Justice? Or is is it, is are the, are the kind of crazy out-of-the-box demands that this far-right caucus still insists on going to be the ante for being the speaker, that you're still going to have to win that stuff. And if you don't win it, and if you, if you end up negotiating with Democrats, your head too will be, will be uh, on a platter. I mean, in my scenario, plausibly, Steve Scalise deals with Democrats, make similar compromises, maybe with like less talking out of both sides of his mouth. I don't know. And yeah, it's fine. Because actually, this was mostly an act of theater, or just the act of theater itself then changes the dynamic in a way that this radical faction just like pulls back a little bit. I mean, it's totally possible that the answer is the opposite, which is that they're going to completely run the show from here on out. They really mean it. And then we have a shutdown for really no reason. Yeah. The, the question is, what are the litmus tests, is, tests for who the new speaker is? Because there's some members who are making getting rid of the motion to vacate or increasing the threshold back to at least what it was. It used to be five members had to introduce a privileged motion to vacate, and McCarthy dropped that down to one. So the first thing is some members are saying, we can't, you know, part of this is a mismatch between the vast majority of House members and this tiny little group the tiny little group just was given this incredibly powerful weapon that really only needed one finger to pull the trigger. So there will be that debate because that debate is about whether, you know, there's too much centralized power in the speaker's office if they change the motion to vacate. Um, and that, and then it's like, what are they going to demand of, of um, Jordan or Scalise on Ukraine funding, for example, in order to put them in the actual chair? I mean, this could go forever. But I, I sort of was feeling the way you were, Emily, which is like, maybe they just are like the fever broke. And now like, we'll put Scalise in there. And we'll kind of muddle through. I mean, that, that so it's really totally up in the air. I don't think history tells us that extremists once given a carrot to eat are extremely happy with that carrot, sit and comfortably chew on that carrot. And they're like, what a great carrot. I'm so happy I have my carrot. I think they tend to go out and then, you know, rape and pillage and get a lot more carrots and parsnips. No, I think it, it's true. I mean, that was that was the implicit message of Bugs Bunny, to be sure. Can we go to your deeper questions about our democracies and the various problems with this? I mean, isn't the underlying dynamic here go back to our right-wing media ecosystem, which is rewarding the Matt Gateses of the world based on their radicalism, and also gerrymandering that so few of these Republicans have to run for election in places where a more moderate stance is actually an asset, and what they're really worried about is being primaried from the right. I mean, if we had not either of those dynamics were different, would we be in this mess? It's a great question. And the first feels bigger than the second because we're we're still only talking about eight Republicans. Like But the fact that the party set it up so that they can run the show is indicative of these larger dynamics, isn't it? Well the fact that the I think the fact that they set it up that way is indicative of the fact that that McCarthy had a teeny tiny little majority and needed to get every single last vote. And it's just the people who were gonna 
hold out for the votes needed, which goes back, I think, to your first point, which is it used to be you elevated through the system by sucking up to the leadership. And that wasn't great, but it meant you couldn't do, you couldn't hijack the entire body because you could raise money and go on TV. And Matt Gates, by the way, had some very reasonable things that he wants about basically doing the budgetary process through regular order. Of course, there's an enormous intellectual disconnect between a party whose leader, Donald Trump, was profligate in his spending and whose ideas about budgets and deficits are way, 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 way crazy relative to the people who are engaged in this fight over the budget right now who are you know, trying to carve up this tiny little piece of the budget because they're doing so, they say, for reasons of fiscal sanity. Donald Trump shares none of those views. So that's a huge inc- inconsistency in what's, in what's going on. Do you guys think that, this, that it's clear that this whole episode at all harms Republicans electorally? Because I certainly don't think so. I think there's a long project. I know Republicans would not put it this way, but there is basically a long project to undermine institutional legitimacy. And if Congress is more feckless and more grotesque, it ultimately benefits the party that's against the project of government. A government that lurches from crisis to crisis is ultimately more politically beneficial to the Republican Party, which draws heavily from the significant fraction of Americans who say they don't want politics, they want a dictatorial leader, they want to sweep away the corruption and and you know blow up the system. And so a, a, a the the undermining of that system, the weakening of that system, while it's it's terrible for all Americans, it's ultimately awful for the the nation. It is probably in the short term, I suspect, a political benefit to Republicans who are pandering to the to the chaos seekers to the to, or to the huge number and growing number of people who don't like politics and don't want politics. I think, uh, David, you make a very interesting point. I, one thing I would say, going back to Matt Gates and what he says, if you take him at his word, he is actually talking about things to reform the budgetary process that would make the institution work better. Now, that may not be his motives. And again, there's a total disconnect between what he's saying and what the party actually believes about fiscal responsibility. So I'm not blind to those things. But if for a moment you did, if you engaged in regular order of the way of the kind that they're talking about, it would make the institution better and more transparent and and uh, and a better way to sort priorities. The problem is that that ain't that ain't the way it works in part of the because of the way Kevin McCarthy ran it. Um Arguably, though, you have to run, you know, that's why you don't want to see the sausage being made. Sometimes you have to run the institution in a in an unpleasant way in order to get things to pass because politicians are not angels. Um, I just wanted to, to give the counterpoint as my last remark to you, David, which is it, the only way it would hurt is if you focused for a moment on the last two big chaos moments in American government. Um, this, the first time a speaker has ever been vacated for um, and this is not over. I mean, this anyway. So you, that's a moment of chaos. We don't know how it's going to turn out. And the one before that is the attack on the Capitol, which is also laid at the feet of the current front runner of the Republican Party. So the last two chaos moments in American government are the result of these forces and this party, which might. Um, I mean, those are irrefutable facts, which could bunched together um, be damaging to the party. Do you want to hear more from us after this episode? You should stick around for a bonus segment. Today, we're going to be talking about Commander, the extremely bitey German shepherd who was living with the Bidens at the White House. And we'll talk about the, the you know, how do you talk about Commander? What do you do about Commander? This segment is just for Slate Plus members. So if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you. Because of your support, we've been able to keep the GapFest going these many years. If you're not a Slate Plus member, we would love it if you signed up. You will get bonus segment of every episode of the GabFest, as well as many other Slate podcasts. You'll get special discounts on our live shows. You won't hit the paywall on the Slate site. Much more. So if you are a member, thank you again. If you're not a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. That's slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. 
And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The Supreme Court is back in session. Conservative majority is no doubt excited about a few big cases that are coming up. Emily, please orient us towards this term, which doesn't have a Dobbs-level case teed up. But actually, there is this Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo case, which could be even more consequential for how the country and its government works. Ooh, are you setting me up to talk about Chevron deference, David? Chevron. <laughs> I am deferring to your, your Chevron deference. Oh, Chevron. Bring me some Chevron deference. I like to call it de France. Chevron de France. Chevron de France. I think the more we use that term, the more abstract the pronunciation of it should be. <laughs> so there are a few ways into this topic. One is, yes, through this question about um, the administrative state. So one big issue that is going to come up this term is how much is the court going to continue to chip away slash assault the powers of the federal government by making it harder for people and agencies to write regulations that interpret legislation, as opposed to the court deciding what laws mean, um, even as it claims that it, what it's really doing is asking Congress to write better laws. That's the kind of dynamic that um, is at play here. And Chevron deference is this term for the idea that courts will defer to the agency, like the EPA's interpretation of a law, if that law is ambiguous. Um, it's been a way that there's been a lot of leeway for people, you know, the the civil servants, the government employees who um, get down in the weeds and try to figure out what it means to have clean water and what exactly um, the responsibilities are for, you know, corporations vis-a-vis -vis these regulations. And if we change that, then they will have less power. And supposedly Congress will, um, you know, dive in and do this kind of detailed lawmaking itself. But in reality, um, Congress will rely on lobbyists, many of them paid heavily by industry, and also judges will have much more discretion over how these laws actually operate on the ground. Also, also a note, sorry to interrupt there, which is that laws have to be written vaguely because they have to anticipate changing circumstances. So you want a law that 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 is written precisely enough that people know more or less what it means, but vaguely enough that if those circumstances on the ground change a bit the overall end goal of the law can still be pursued. Yeah, like, so for example, the Clearing Air Act, do you name all the particular substrates in the air in the 1970s that are a problem? Or do you also say at the end, and anything else that could pose a serious hazard to human health, and then you would take in, um, you know, carbon dioxide and the other things that are causing climate change. That's like one example. It would be really good if Congress could do more updating of laws, but Congress isn't doing that. And so, yes, exactly, David, do you write the law capaciously or do you be, are you much more specific? That's like always a real challenge with writing legislation. And 
ending Chevron deference would really change how that works. I should also say that apart from Chevron deference, the court has already taken a huge whack at agency discretion with this other doctrine called the major questions doctrine, in which it's saying, okay, well, even if the statute is clear, it's not ambiguous. If the agency interpretation creates what the court thinks is a major question, like if it's a big deal and it doesn't seem like the law specifically addressed that thing the court decides is a big deal, then the agency interpretation gets struck down in that case as well. So we've already had that set of moves, which is really affecting agency power. I mean, I also just want to emphasize, I mean, Emily, you are much more the knowledgeable person and the historian of this, but but this attack on Chevron deference and on the administrative state and the 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 major questions doctrine, this is not um, a small thing. This is this has been a major project of the Federalist Society and the conservative legal movement for half a century, like a genuinely titanic project. It was less visible to people than than the row, the the attempts to to undermine Roe, but it's even bigger because it's actually it's got so much more money involved in it, so many more corporate interests. I mean, like all the manufacturing uh, dollars of the United States have some tiny fraction of them have been deployed to advance this cause and to build up a cadre of lawyers and and eventually judges and now justices who will be sympathetic to these arguments. So it's like, I, it's not just this is a sort of like a abstract legal argument about a con- constitutional interpretation and, and, it's it's something which is a specific long term campaign by conservatives in the same way that you could argue you know the the civil rights all the civil rights legislation of the previous fifty years is something that was a long term liberal effort but this is a this is not accidental it's not a minor thing it is deliberate intentional and decades long in the making absolutely and it's a huge deal and the reason we talk about it less is it's more boring but while it's not a um, small thing it's not necessarily. A bad thing by which I should hasten to add, if it were carried out in its pristine form, and obviously the debate here is whether um, conservative justices only care about overreach when it's overreach in areas they don't like. But in a in an abstract theological sense, don't you want situations in which the executive and the administrative state doesn't have a whole bunch of power, and that where there are questions that are of sufficient weight? that it goes back to the legislature if you had a functioning legislature that could handle and and work these these various puzzles because there are you know huge country with lots of different constituencies the best way to work it out is through a legislature where the, who, they are close to the people and they have some sense of the changing situation whereas and in, in the executive which is already burdened with lots of things to do um, you end up having single blunt responses to things and you make it larger and larger and more responsible for government and steal the power from the legislature. I mean, I'm not sure no, I, I don't that. agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is some ideal idealized like Athenian universe in which that makes sense. But I think um, actually having a professional set of experts who are farther away from partisan politics, who are deciding like how many particulates of matter of a certain um you know poison in the air you want like right i would rather have them making those decisions especially because congress is not staffed to do those things congress doesn't have scientists they don't have hundreds of people who work for them in each of those offices and i don't want the lobbyists to be making those decisions because i think it gives large corporations more and more power yeah, totally in the in that coloring of it and in that in that version, which is why I hasten to add that obviously it's in the execution of this. When the Brownlow report was written um, during FDR's administration, the whole point of that was to say was FDR saying there the world moves too fast and there are too many important things to be handled by the legislature, and you have to have in order to keep up with the progress and pace of technology, you have to have an administrative capability that can address these things that are moving quickly because there's the legislature isn't smart enough and also because of those political influences. So sure, in the worst case possible, yes, you don't want to hand your governing over to the lobbyists. But there has to be a situation in which everything doesn't always flow to the executive because otherwise what Congress does is it makes the laws and then gives the authority to the executive. So over time, it will just give away all of its authority because it will always ad- it will address whatever the number of issues are, give that authority to the executive, and then the executive 
just runs with it. Well, that's not that's as much of a cartoon version of this as letting the lobbyists run everything. So you want a balance in in and that's why I was talking about in the abstract. It's not isn't the whole point of the judiciary to try to find that balance. And that and that if the balance gets too far over in the side of the administrative state, you want to move it back towards a balance but where the legislature I don't think there's any evidence it. that there's that it's too far over on the side of the administrative state. I think that there's evidence that it's too far over on the side of the executive branch, that the executive branch relatively has more power. But there's Well, isn't the administrative state in the executive branch? Yes and no, but there's been this undermining of expertise, undermining of expertise and undermining of respect for well, the expertise. And I actually don't way. think, I actually don't think, actually, I take it back. I think where it's moved, it's, it's moved toward the judicial branch, that the power has, has, has moved into the judicial branch as the, as Congress has become sclerotic and the executive has become aggressive, but aggressive in, in erratic ways the judicial branch has sort of accreted more and more of this power to itself. And now it proposes to accrete yet more power to itself by saying, no, no, we'll be the arbiters of what, what these laws actually mean and, and, and not the experts. But if they're asking to go back to Congress, how are they the arbiters? Well, because co- we know the Congress isn't actually going to answer the question adequately. But that right? doesn't mean they're arbiters. No, but it will, be- it will come back to them. Because there'll then be a dispute and it will, it will be like, they will be the ones who will say, actually, the law means X. Well, I think the one way to pick this up is this question of like, who decides, right? Which branch of government is ultimately going to decide what these laws mean? And in an idealized universe, um, the courts would send it back to Congress and Congress would provide a coherent answer and they would update a big old statute. Um, Isn't that what I was saying? That is what you're saying. And David and I are saying we don't live in that actual universe. Well, that's why I said we don't live. But, but my point is that that this project that David was saying was awful. The awfulness is not in the project. The awfulness is in the, the way in which it's carried out, which is a not unimportant distinction. Well, but I actually think if you look at the bureaucratic states of Europe, that these very strong uh, permanent bureaucracies function better as governments that serve their people. They work better. It's not to say they don't make mistakes. Of course they make mistakes. Of course they overregulate. Of course there are times where they screw things up, as experts obviously do. But all in all, would I rather have a situation where there are a whole lot of unelected bureaucratic experts who are following vague legislative guidance and vague uh, executive direction than, than one where corporate interests are writing laws and then a bunch of judges are interpreting what they mean and there isn't very there's much less expert uh, well, the intrusion is, in it and 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 bureaucratic intrusion yeah i would well, much rather have the, the bureaucratic lobbyists is, lobby the, the executive branches too they don't just lobby they don't just lobby members oh of Congress. for sure but who they do you, don't like who go, do you think is getting them to write to figure out how to interpret all those yeah laws? but i mean it is true that there are hundreds of people who work at these agencies who are not like sitting down for lunch every day with k street right there are people on different yeah levels. but their bosses their are. bosses are but those political appointees then they get frustrated with how much they're actually able to affect what's happening among the career employees because there are so many of them and like that's a way in which we've sort of walled off a lot of the actual work, right? It turns out to be quite difficult, as Donald Trump learned, to come in and just like completely turn the agency around. Not impossible. You do stuff. Sure. It matters who the EPA secretary is, the FDA secretary. But there is this, um, there are some efforts of like some guardrails. There is an administrative state. But the guardrails are enforced by who? It just is the way the like federal agencies actually work, right? That the careers and the politicals t- play different roles and the politicals can try to wrest control. And they do control some things. They control the direction of some of these interpretive moves the agency is making. But then there also are these underlying dynamics that allow the agency to resist being like radically retooled so that they no longer regulate power plants. Right, but totally not the way it's supposed to work. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure about that, given all the things we were just talking about, like why, you know, FDR and other early 20th century presidents created, like, why we have this administrative state. But I'm saying the person who's supposed to be paying attention to particulate matter shouldn't be having to fight off the political guy who 
is telling is is making policy. I mean, the, the way it's supposed to work is the administrative state works and then Congress oversees it and says, you've gone too far over this direction or you've gone too far over in that direction. What you don't want is a is a president elected by lobbyists who then appoint people who are former lobbyists to run these agencies, because otherwise then then it's up to the poor guy who's studying the particulate matter to find his way around trying to do what he's supposed to do and fight the power of the the lobbyist, not just who's influencing a vote, but who is an actual lobbyist who is now the head of the agency. That was an energetic discussion. Emily, what are the other cases that are have your attention? But by the way, the, the conservatives are going to win that case. Chevron deference will be no more. We will now have Loper Bright undeference. Interestingly, it's a, a an opinion by Justice Scalia in Chevron that is um, on the chopping block here. The other cases I'm watching, there is an important case about gun rights. It's going to be argued in November. It's called U.S. versus Rahimi. And it is about whether Congress was allowed, as it did in the 1990s, to say that people who are under a protective order because of domestic violence can not be able to own guns. So in other words, you have someone who um, was accused of domestic violence, there was a protective order against him, and it turned out he still had a gun, and so they took his gun away. Um, And so this is part of expanding um, the right to bear arms under the Second Amendment, another project of the conservative majorities. The facts of this case are really bad for the gun rights side, and so I wonder um, how it's going to come out that is an interesting one, an important case. As we know, Emily, in colonial America, if you were a wife beater, you were allowed to have a musket. We are all aware of that 100% of wife beaters had muskets. Yes. And that is a big problem because now what the Supreme Court says you have to do in order to have a modern gun regulation is show that it was anchored in the nation's history and tradition. And so the very laws that protected the wife beaters at a time when women could not vote or own property on their own if they were married are now going to come back and um, boomerang against trying to prevent people who have committed or are alleged to have committed domestic violence from owning weapons. It's really kind of a head scratcher in terms of a policy choice. Um, and then the court hasn't taken this case yet, but it's very likely that the court is going to hear a challenge to the FDA's approval of one of the abortion pills, mifepristone. This is based on um, what to me is a kind of wild decision by the Fifth Circuit um, Court of Appeal saying that the FDA was not allowed to say that you could um, prescribe and mail pills to people all over the country, um, even though there is lots of evidence about the safety and effectiveness of this medication. It took the FDA actually like a really long time to reach that decision. And um, this case is a huge deal for pharma because it really would fly in the face of how we do national drug approval to take back the FDA's decision in this case. We've learned in the interim since the last term ended, just how many different billionaire white guys are trying to influence conservative justices in different ways? How many of them have jets? How many of them have conferences? How many of them have upstate uh, New York camps that are lavish, lovely places to be? Um, But there will not be a code of ethics this term, even though some justices would like to adopt something. Do you think we are going to end up with a code of ethics? That's such a good question. I mean, this shooting itself in the foot the court is doing is is Clarence Thomas and some um, sideshow also, of justice. That's historically Alito. that's a historically uh, something that's been allowed. When under gun rights, you've been allowed to shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> that has been something that's been encouraged, encouraged. in American <laughs> in American life. So you're allowed to have a gun to shoot yourself. It's in the true, foot. although I think what Clarence Thomas has been doing is really in a class of its own. So the court absolutely should have its own set of binding ethical guidelines, even if there's no oversight and enforcement of them, because they won't let that happen because they have to be the supreme beings of the universe. At least they should sign on to some set of rules that they agree to. Uh, One imagines that Chief Justice Roberts um, spent a good part of his summer trying to get everyone to sign off on such a code. And obviously, and I have, I'm just saying that, I don't know that to be true, but I mean, it really seems like he would have tried and they don't have one. And um, you're right. Uh, It's really a complete fail on their part. And the fact that they haven't agreed to one now does not bode well for the future. I suppose it's possible that if some of the heat 
simmers down about Thomas in particular, if the revelations about him stop, that it would be easier to enact a code of ethics because it won't seem like a personal rebuke to him. And maybe he could go for it in a different moment. But I don't know if those revelations are going to end given his behavior. And um, in any case, it's incredibly weak-willed of them not to be able to do this now. It is really hard to make sense of urban crime data these days. There, violent crime in cities, including homicides, seems to be down in 2023, but it's still significantly higher than it was pre-pandemic. Carjacking is up in a lot of places. There was a House member carjacked this week here in my hometown of Washington, D.C. And and actually living in Washington, D.C., I feel this particularly because D.C. is an outlier to whatever crime reductions have been happening elsewhere. The worst year for homicides in 25 years here um, and just rampant carjacking and car theft here in D.C. Cable news, especially conservative cable news, has been transfixed by the idea that there's an urban crime epidemic uh, by the gangs of robbers invading stores in various cities and sweeping out shelves. Target is going to close nine urban stores in response to rising crime. Um, Meanwhile, you have a lot of urban police departments that are shrinking, waves of retirements, relocations to cushier suburban and rural police forces have pushed department staffing levels in some cities by down by 10 or 20 percent. And there's a sense, like at least cops will say, that the post-George Floyd atmosphere for being a police officer is no good and they, you know, it's just hard, it's harder for them to do their job. So it, there's this kind of question, which is, I think it's a interlocking set of questions. Is there an urban crime crisis or is there a narrative of urban chaos that's being pushed explicitly by conservative politicians and media who are distorting what's happening in cities? And whether or not there's an urban crime crisis, are we, how are we supposed to talk about it? So I'm, I'm really interested in this because I, just to put my, you know, my cards on the table, DC feels much less safe than it has felt. The kind of crime, the prevalence of it, the, the, the nature of it is disturbing. The Metro in DC historically has been incredibly safe. There's been a lot of crime on Metro recently. Um, cars are getting stolen. Dogs are getting stolen. People are stealing people's dogs on the street. My girlfriend is obsessed with this. Um, and it's, it's, it just does not feel to me the way that DC felt for most of the past 25 years. And, you know, it's one city, very anecdotal. I live in a, you know, I live in a very privileged part of the city. I'm, you know, have all the safety and precautions that one can have. But when I see the, the news and people are saying, no, there's no urban crime crisis, I'm like, really? Really? Is that what you feel? Okay. So two things, one national and more sweeping and one, I think, more responsive. So just first of all, if you take a longer time horizon and you look at homicide and violent crime rates over time in America, what you see is that they were much higher at their peaks in the 90s than they are now. Much, much higher. It is true that we had a spike in homicides um, during the pandemic, for a variety of reasons, that is coming down. But even that spike was nothing near what we all lived with if we were alive then in the 90s um, and in the 80s. So I just want to put that in context because I feel like we keep talking about pre and post pandemic as if 2019 is the norm. But like we grew up with a much more violent norm than existed pre pandemic. But Emily, people don't, you don't, that you don't live in 30 years ago. It's not like you, you live in, Oh, I, well, I remember what it was like in 86 here in the crackhead epidemic, and it's not as bad as that, so it's fine. I mean, like, you live in a constant state of relativity. She's just rebalancing the conversation so that you can figure out what the, if the question is, what is the, where does the solution come from? Looking at the long time horizon lets us know whether this is an acute situation or whether it's a blip that requires targeted, you know, recovery. Um, methods to fix this targeted thing. So, you know, perspective is always a good thing. Yeah, I'm trying exactly to provide a little of that perspective. I also think it is really, really important to remember that what we did as a country in response to the 90s was disastrous. It was terrible. We ended up with, you know, tons of mass incarceration that has been ruinous to a lot of, um, you know, the poorer communities that none of us live in. Um, especially to, you know, urban black neighborhoods in this country and to people. And it is very hard to talk about 
crime in a kind of writ large way without feeding into that frenzy. And I, for one, am desperate not to go back to that. It did not work. That is not to say that swift, fair, certain punishment is not part of how you bring back public safety, right? And so there are totally targeted things we can talk about. And I mean, I personally think that having depleted police forces is not working well in these cities. And there are other specifics that, you know, I think like, absolutely are worth addressing. But it is really important to be careful about how, you know, present you make crime in your own thinking about your life and in the political discourse. And yes, D.C. is one of a small number of cities that is not seeing the decline in violent crime that is happening elsewhere. And if I lived where you lived, I'm sure it would feel more present to me, too. But I don't live there. And most of us don't live there. And most of us are not experiencing what you're talking about. Instead, what we are seeing are these videos of like shoplifting rings online that go viral and that Fox News cannot play enough of. And that is a specific problem happening in some cities. But it does not mean that when I am walking down the street, I am less safe. Like we are so affected by anecdotes in this area, right? I run a lot in a park near my house that has some woods in it. And a friend of mine recently sent me something about a woman um, being assaulted in that park from months ago. And she was like, I don't know if I want to run here anymore by myself. And I thought to myself, like, I'm, I'm really sorry that happened to that woman. She was fine. She yelled. The guy ran away. Everything was okay. I would still not like to be that person. But that's one incident in, like, how many years have I lived here? And I remember the last one. And it was a long time ago. And I just feel like we need to be smarter in how we think about what this actually means for our personal risk. And the policy solutions we then glom onto, which just inevitably people start talking about harsher penalties again. Yeah, being suckered into a con- some conservative scheme to to smear cities and smear Democratic leaders of them is wrong. And there's no doubt that the media portrayals and the media images influence people and make them think differently. But it is also the case that the number one, the number one job of government is public safety. It is the most important thing. And if there is a loss of public confidence in that, it's very bad. And certainly where I live, there's a loss of public confidence. Certainly where I live, there's a sense that lots of places in the city where I live are feel less safe than they did. And you can, you know, you can say, well, you can't, you you know, don't go to these harsh punishment solutions. And I agree, those harsh punishment solutions aren't right. But it is it is not enough to to wish it away and to wish people not feeling away. Oh, I totally agree. I think that you have to figure out a way to talk about it locally that has to do with your particular the particular issues your city is having. I just don't think that the answer, and this is what I was seeing and what I was reading, was like longer sentences. Again, no. I mean I think like facing the fact that the pandemic was deeply unmooring. It caused so much disorder where there was once order, emptiness where there was once life, kids with too much time on their hands, less stuff for them to do, downtowns that are that are just like empty and therefore welcoming of crime or welcoming of chaos in a way they weren't. And you add the sort of pungent, disgusting aspects of social media where there's there is this way to celebrate like like bad behavior can be celebrated online. And it is like I see that, you know, with in in, in these videos of fights at schools and these TikTok channels of fights at schools. Yeah, it's like gladiators. It's bad. There's a different kind of atmosphere in the post pandemic era. And I'm not saying that it's like what it was during during 1986 in 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 you know, in Trinidad here in DC. I'm not saying that's what it's like, but it is significantly worse as feeling for in DC and we ignore it at our peril. So just to remind people what the story is, right? So homicides are down a great deal from 2023, from 2022, but they're still higher than they were in 2019. The question, Emily, is things are actually getting better relative to the previous year. The question is, is the, is the, as the pandemic becomes less a part of our life, do people expect that trend to continue? And therefore, it's headed down towards 2019 levels and maybe even gets better. And that, in other words, we are in a blip in time. And to go back to your initial point, that overreaction now would be particularly disastrous because you're not reacting to what seems to be the largest cause, which is the pandemic, which as it goes away, appears to be making crime rates go down, except in 
oddly, car theft, which somebody needs to explain to me. So the question is, is the number coming down of its own weight, essentially? Or is there something particularly sticky that would would require a targeted response? Yeah, I mean, as usual, it's really hard to know in the moment. We're really bad at knowing what causes crime to go up or down um, in any kind of short-term way. Those explanations often turn out to be wrong. One thing that is worrisome is how awash in guns our country is. Like, that is not helpful for bringing gun violence down. And yet it is encouraging that nonetheless the homicide rate is receding in most of the country. And we're just going to have to, I don't have an answer about that because it's just too soon to know. I do think it's important to separate out violent crime, which is like terrible and serious and the thing we should be the most concerned about from auto theft, which is not good, but is like a completely different kind of property crime. And then these shoplifting videos and these shoplifting rings, right? These are separate problems and they all contribute to a sense of disorder and lack of public safety, but they have different kinds of solutions. One thing that I'm obsessed with, again, DC focus, apologies. If you look at DC school attendance, the percentage of kids in DC who are missing major chunks of the school year that's yeah, just it's enormous. Like yes. in DC, every school, every school, it's way more than a majority of kids are missing way more than the allotted amount of time you're allowed to miss every year. And this is an after effect of the pandemic that has not receded. And it's terrifying. And it's why I was so worried about closing schools the way we did in a lot of blue cities for these very extended periods of time during the pandemic. Yeah. And when kids, when kids feel they can be tardy, be absent, be truant without any consequence, they end up doing, getting up to bad things. Chronic school absence is on the rise in 40 different states. There's a professor at Stanford, Thomas D., who we had on uh, the other night, who wrote the study about this. Um, and it's, I mean, as Emily says, it's go, it's, it's part of the mental health crisis that's, that's in the aftermath of the pandemic. And that unlike, you know, Maybe if homicide rates and violent crime is going down as the pandemic recedes, the mental health crisis is not receding um, as a result of the pandemic. Although one thing that um, that was somewhat encouraging from this conversation with Professor D was that um, he says interventions actually, small nudges actually can can help with this problem. In other words, if the school schools are in touch with the parents that in a lot of cases, it can get some of these kids back on track. Um, so that was encouraging to hear. Right. But we need more of that. I mean, I also feel like we were talking about depleted police forces. There's also the problem of our depleted teaching force. Like that is a huge issue. And I actually think it's all tied together um, in a way that makes, again, it's like, where do where does this question begin? Are you talking about root causes enough? Are you talking about prevention enough? Or do you just like pick up the same old hammer we always pick up, which is to talk about longer sentences, even though they don't apply to enough people. And they're obviously, we know from so much research that simply lengthening sentences, like saying 10 years for robbery as opposed to five or eight years, that is not a real deterrent effect and it causes harm. And there are so many other things you can do on the front end that are better policy solutions. John, how should democratic politicians talk about this? Or should they not talk about it? It's such a great issue for Republicans as a political issue. But what what is the way they should deal with it? Should they pretend it doesn't exist? Should they have sister soldier moments every every three minutes? What should they do? It's a really good question, because as you pointed out, and as we perhaps have demonstrated in the conversation, um, the, the, these talks tend to be really blunt. And so if you try to put something in context in a political in a political conversation, it's much easier to say that you're waving away the problem than confronting it. Um, and so the danger there is big for Democratic uh, uh, politicians. It's particularly big because you have the migrant um, challenges in some of America's biggest cities. Um, and you saw in the last Republican debate, Nikki Haley at one point sort of did just a, like a free poetry um, uh, response about immigration. And she said, and you see what's happening in, in Philadelphia. And 
I think she was referring to these gangs of shoplifters, which has nothing to do with migration. Um, but she was basically clumping these two things together, which politically is quite wise. Um, the Democratic administration that's supposed to be dealing with the border is not doing very well. And the Democratic politicians who are supposed to be taking care of crime in the cities are not doing very well. And both of these contribute to be a wolf at the door for any American anywhere. How you respond to that as a Democratic politician is quite tricky. Um, if you're a mayor, you probably get in fights with the White House on the migration issue um, to show that you're, you know, standing up for your citizens, which is what Pritzker is doing in Illinois and Adams is doing in New York. Um, for for other kinds of local officials, I think you have to be like on the front lines with the cops all the time. And maybe you say you 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 do what Emily says, which is put things in context, which is important. But I mean, I don't think if you're a mayor, you can have enough events with cops. Um, because by the way, cops are really important and take care of us. And they are a valued and noble profession. I mean, I think you talk about public safety, which you're right, David, is a fundamental responsibility and super important to everyone, especially poor people who actually are the people who are really affected more by crime and live in the more risky places generally. So you talk about public safety and then you talk about better policing. You talk about, yeah, you need to have cops on the street and you also need to have them doing the work in a way that does not harass and alienate and, um, you know, arrest people for no reason, but actually makes us safer. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, when uh, you are ringing out a tough day in the big city, in the harsh big city, and you're having a drink to ease the cares of the world, what are you going to be chattering about? A book and a movie. The book is a new novel by Daniel Mason called North Woods, which I'm like halfway through and really enjoying. And it reminds me of Lauren Groff's book, The Vaster Wilds, which I recommended a few weeks ago. They have a... In a lovely way, they're both very lyrical and historical, and um, I'm just really soaking up this book and loving it. And the TV series I'm super into right now is called Tiny Beautiful Things. It's Have you guys heard of this show? I feel like it came out sometime, I don't know, in the spring, and I completely missed it. Um, and I really love it. Well, so first of all, it stars Katherine Hahn, who <gasps> I'm completely, yes, is wonderful. I think of her as the rabbi in Transparent, but I realize she's done many things since then. And it's this interesting idea. It's about Cheryl Strayed, who is the author of the memoir Wild and um, has written the love advice column Dear Sugar. But it's like the road that Cheryl Strayed's real life did not take. It's as if Cheryl Strayed did not go hike the Pacific Trest Trail and kind of save herself after her mother died of cancer when Strayed was young. It's like none of that happened. And instead, she got had a baby, got married, lived, uh, didn't find herself as a writer, um, as a young woman. And it's really good. It's like about this very mixed up person and her family. And it's tiny and beautiful. So tiny, beautiful things on some streaming service somewhere, which people can find. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? My chatter is actually about um, two things. The Nobel Prize in physics was um, awarded for the measurement of electrons in matter with pulses of light that flash at an attosecond. And an attosecond is such a small space of time is that there are as many attoseconds in a single second as there have been seconds in the history of the universe. What? Anyway, so that's what's up with that, which is just kind of crazy. So, and then the other thing is that on um, the 4th of October, it was the 66th anniversary of the launching of Sputnik, which is very cool. But then my colleague, Laura Doan, pointed out an article in Fast Company that before Sputnik, the electronic beep, which we all would recognize, you know, as a part of our daily lives, was not in our daily lives. That basically Sputnik beeped. And because, of course, everybody was obsessed with the fact that the Soviet Union had put a satellite uh, up into the um, uh, up into space and that America was behind and that there was a missile gap and we were all going to die. Um, that beep became this kind of audible representation of that. And then, of course, the beep is now like an electronic beep was like no big deal. But this is the moment at which that came into our lives, which is among the many things that Sputnik kicked off that I didn't realize was one of them. 
my chatter is about a new podcast I'm listening to. Not a new podcast, a podcast that is new to me uh, that my friends Danny and Amy and Simon told me about. Uh, Fall of Civilizations. And it is a historian, a sort of like amateurish historian um, named Paul Cooper, who talks for some hours about how a particular civilization rose and fell. And it's if you listen to hardcore history, it's in the same kind of family as hardcore history. Very smart uh, person, charismatic talker who just goes on and on and on and on and on about some aspect of history that you've kind of vaguely know. And I'm listening to the one about the fall of Carthage. And I just didn't know anything about the civilization of Carthage. And I'm, it's been fascinating to learn about the civilization of Carthage. So check out the fall of civilizations wherever you get your pods. Listeners, you have chatters. You have emailed them to us at gabfestatslate.com. Please keep them coming. Love reading your your chatter emails. I love going and checking out uh, the things you send us. Uh, one recommendation that was sent to us a few weeks ago has now become my go-to soundtrack. I just listen to it over and over again. And our uh, listener chatter this week comes from Danny O'Malley. I'm a filmmaker based in Los Angeles, and my listener chatter is a film I made called Canary. Canary tells the life story of Dr. Lonnie Thompson, also known as the real-life Indiana Jones. In the 1980s, Lonnie defied conventional wisdom by taking a six-ton drill up an 18,000-foot mountain in the middle of nowhere in Peru to get ice cores from the glaciers there. Lonnie and his team live there for weeks or months on end. The film tells the story of Lonnie's life growing up in coal country, West Virginia, and becoming one of the world's leading climate scientists warning us about climate change. It's a story about doing the impossible, hope, denial, and belief. There's a Gabfest connection, too. During our filming, we filmed a ceremony at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and it was the same ceremony where Emily got her membership in the Academy. It's in theaters in select cities in September, and it's available for online rental at the end of October. That is our show for today. Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please send us your chatter at gabfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz, thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Better than better than the secret service officers in the Biden white house, apparently. So commander, the third of the Biden's German shepherds has, as of today, as of reporting in the New York times has now been sent away from the white house. So commander is a German shepherd, a young German shepherd that's been involved according to evidence overturned by a FOIA request from judicial watch, been involved in 11 aggressive episodes at the White House, most apparently directed towards Secret Service agents, including a biting episode uh, that left, I think, left an agent hospitalized, and then another where the Secret Service agent had to use a chair to fend off uh, Commander. Um, there was also an earlier, an earlier dog, an earlier German Shepherd that the Bidens had, Major, that was involved in a couple of biting episodes, that, and that dog was exiled to a lesser Biden house in Delaware, I think. What do you guys make of of the Commander story? of commander, poor commander himself, and the commander story and why people are interested in it. I mean, I feel so bad for everybody in this story. Like, this was the wrong dog for the White House with all of the things that go on in the White House. I mean, German Shepherds would seem like a tricky breed for this because they're guard dogs as well as being shepherding dogs. And I can't help but feel, I mean, obviously, the Secret Service agents should not be getting bitten by a dog and 11 biting incidents is like way too many biting incidents. I also feel terrible for the Bidens who just had to send their dog away. Yeah. But you know, if you can't control your dog, don't have it in a place where there are other people. I mean, this is, we take a walk every morning and the dogs are, uh, are allowed in Central Park to be off their leash. And it's a wonderful period of just like frolicking dog madness. And um, the dogs, when they play, obviously, you know, they bite and they 
attack each other. It's all in play. And that takes place in like an area where that's what dogs are supposed to do there. And then there are the dog owners who have dogs who are hyper reactive. They don't have them on leashes. And then the predictable thing happens. They walk along, their dog freaks out at another dog. They have to rush over and seem surprised at this thing that happens every morning on their walk. And like, if you have a dog that's reactive, have them on a leash or deal with it because they're you're walking in a place with lots of other people and lots of other dogs. It's not the place that's designated for dog mayhem. So if you're going to take a dog that's super reactive into a place with other people, like there is one thing you do, control your dog. And also Secret Service, they're there to protect you and you're not like, you're letting 10 incidents go by before you deal with this. Seems kind of bad workplace behavior. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.